The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we sang just, just now about your wonderful love for us and want to now in prayer acknowledge that again and say, it is wonderful, thank you. Thank you that you have loved us so to send your Son for us, to redeem, to draw us near to you. Thank you that you have promised not to leave us, but have sent your Spirit into us to live within us and to, to move us, to, to commune with us personally and to move us to follow you. And thank you that you have promised not even to leave us in that state, but to come and get us, to bodily come and restore everything. To bodily send Jesus again, to send Jesus bodily again, to redeem our bodies, in fact, to make all things new to bring the kingdom in all of its fullness. So you have loved us to save, you have loved us to indwell, and you have loved us to completely save, to, to fully redeem one day. And we say thank you. It is a wonderful love for us. You are good, good Father. It is who you are. Perhaps we sing that and we repeat it several times and by the third or fourth time we're not thinking about it anymore. But you are a good, good Father. Press that into us, please. Press your goodness. Press your wonderful fatherly love into us. If there are some here this morning or, or who hear this who, who are not in relationship with you, would you draw them in? Would you pour out this kind of love on them and would you save? But for us, your people, Lord, this is who you are. We are a dearly loved people. That's who we are. Would you cause us to comprehend that in a new and in fresh way? Would you press it into us this morning? Open our eyes and give us the ability to see and to delight in you and you with us. Build your church, Lord. Make this passage clear this morning. Clarity to our listening, our, our speaking. And from it, would you please produce a church that is different. Different in whatever way is necessary now but is, is in pursuit of you in joy. Make that happen, Lord, this morning. Please make your word clear. Honor Christ and build your people. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 11. After spending half of the previous chapter, chapter 10, recounting for us the mission of the 72, which is intended to be the mission that pictures what all of Jesus' disciples are about, that's the first half of 10, then Luke spends the second half showing us more of what we are to be like while we are about that. 
And he gets at that by helping us think about the greatest commandment. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, with all of our, our strength, all of ourselves, everything. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. That comes up as Jesus dialogues with this particular scribe. And then, of course, we see love of neighbor reflected in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then, pictured for us last week, love of devotion to God, seen in the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus arrived at their house, probably Martha's house, arrived there, and how these two sisters react to him shows us, I mean, kind of a little very small picture there, shows us what love of devotion to God looks like and what it doesn't quite look like. And I say it doesn't quite look like it because it's not that Martha's wrong, as we talked about last week, it's just she has something out of order. She's, she's disordered. First and foremost, a disciple who loves the Lord his or her God with everything is eager, like Mary, to sit before the Lord, to commune with God, and to be taught by him. First and foremost. Second comes service for him. Service in his name, service to him. But it's, it's an order thing. And, and we, as we saw, Mary's the one who's commended to us. She's the one who has chosen the good portion. That's the one that feeds her. That's supposed to be first. To sit before God, to commune with him, to be taught by him. That was last week, and that leads very nicely into this week's passage because our passage is about a different aspect of sitting with and communing with God. It's, it's going to move us towards thinking about prayer. As, we, as we'll see here when we read it eventually, the, the passage has Jesus praying himself personally, and we have seen this, if you recall, a bunch in Luke because Luke constantly brings it up. It's in chapter 3 and in 5 and in 6 and twice in 9, Jesus praying. Because Luke, because Jesus is trying to show us something. This is, this is Jesus, fully God, who is also fully man. And as man, as human, is the perfect man and is perfectly dependent on God, his Father, and prays always. Again and again and again and again, we're shown it. Trying to model something for us. He, like Mary, is first and foremost consistently before the Lord, communing with him. And then we have an unnamed disciple who, probably seeing that over time, finally gets up the nerve to ask him, Jesus, teach us to do that. Like, like teachers would teach their disciples, teach us to pray like, like you pray. And what he says is familiar to us. We, we know it as the Lord's Prayer. We know it probably in a slightly different version, the longer version that's recorded in Matthew. But Jesus probably answered this question. Teachers would teach their disciples. He probably answered the question a number of times, slightly differently from time to time, because it was never meant to be wrote. Never say exactly these words. That's why it's different in Matthew and different here in Luke. Rather, what he's trying to get across, not these words, but these concepts, these ideas, this perspective, this is how you should pray. When you pray, think like this. Talk like this. This is how you sit before God and commune with him. So what we're going to look at is, is Luke's version of this prayer, beginning now and then the following week, maybe weeks. 
and we're not, we're not going to compare it to Matthew. We're going we're to stay on Luke here, understanding that this is going to give us general guidelines, but not specifics, not in a specific recitation manner. But this is going to give us guidance as to how Jesus wants his disciples to pray. So that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to read the whole prayer, verses 1 to 4, and then make three observations just from verses 1 and 2 this morning. So let me read it. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Luke 11, verses 1 to 4. From 1 and 2 then, three observations. Here's the first one. Disciples are privileged to pray as children talking with an attentive dad. Disciples, Christians, we have a privilege. We are privileged to pray like as children talking with an attentive dad. Now what Jesus says here in the whole prayer that I I read, that all would have made general sense to his original audience. They would have heard some similarity because it would have resembled in several different phrases a prayer commonly offered at the end of synagogue services back in that day. So Jesus didn't make this up out of thin air. It it has some similarity. It's what he's teaching them to pray is not completely novel ideas, but more what's what's new is is a subtle perspective and an approach rather than whole new categories and whole new wording. That being said, one of those new approaches comes in some specific wording. In fact, the very first word, Father. We're so familiar with this, it's, it's kind of hard for us to, to get it. And then we're familiar with it perhaps in a stilted way. So we've got to kind of think this through a little bit. Original hearers, the idea of Father is not foreign. We heard read earlier a verse from the Old Testament From the time of the Davidic covenant, at least, Israelites heard of father and son language, but it was from the Davidic covenant and then repeated in in Psalm 2 at every coronation ceremony. Father and son most closely applies to God and the person that he just anointed king. And then sometimes then through, through that king to the kingdom, to the people as a whole. That's where the language of of father and son applies. At the level of king, at the level of Israel. So what's different here is that Jesus says of all of his disciples personally, verse 2, when you pray, say, Father. That's unusual. It's surprising that I'm supposed to, little me is supposed to pray with that word. It's surprising, it's, it's wonderful, 
because of all the ways that you could start a prayer, and you can read all this in the Bible, you see this everywhere, of all the ways you could start a prayer to the God of the Bible, think of it, Lord, Almighty God, Sovereign King, Creator and Sustainer of the earth and all that is. Those are ways the prayers of the Bible sometimes start. Those would be completely appropriate. It's fine that we use them. But this is different. And we can use those other titles. We can call him the sovereign king of the universe. As long as we also understand what Jesus is getting at here. He says, when you pray, okay, let me teach you to pray like like I pray. When you pray, start here. Father, that is, Dad. It's important to put it like that because that catches another misunderstanding for us. We hear Father, and certainly it's not King, but Father in English today is formal. We should hear Father, and perhaps on our, on our ears should hear the, the repeated phrasing in the, in the New Testament, Abba, Father. That's two different languages saying the same thing. Abba comes from the language Jesus actually would have been speaking. Father comes from the language in which this is written. It's two different languages saying the same thing. And while the word Father is formal for us, and certainly it always carries the idea of authority, what's unique about it is, in, is the intimacy, which we sometimes miss in English. None of us, I hope, talk to our dads, Father, in everyday talk. That's, that's formal. Dad. Dad makes it more personable. That's what he's getting at here. There's a uniqueness here about intimacy, familiarity. This is about children addressing an attentive dad. Who is also the king. Never forget that. But he's dad. And Jesus says, here's how you should pray. Start here. A surprising intimacy. Disciples alone have a privilege because we are in relation to him. We are in relationship with him as children of God. Disciples, Christians alone. The New Testament is full of this teaching. It's extremely clear. We do not start off as children of God. Human beings are not God's children. The language of the Bible over and over and over again is we become Human beings become children of God. We are born again as children of God. We start out as people and then can in our human lives become God's children. There's a change that happens. How does that happen? Well, it's everywhere, but consider John chapter 1. Christians, this is... I want to rehearse this for you because at the end it comes around to something I think is precious. We have become children of God. How did that happen? Well, John chapter 1, verse 12 tells us those who received him, who believed in his name, to those ones, he gave the right to become children of God. God gave us who received him the right to become his children. How did that happen? How is it that we received him? 
Well, verse 13 says three things that didn't cause it. Not because of blood, that is, not because of our race, racial background. Not because of the will of the flesh, that is, not because of our family line, because of natural offspring ways, not because of who your parents are. And not because of the will of man, not because of anything we've done, anything that we've wanted to do, any kind of behavior, anything that anybody has intended for us. We received the right to become children of God, not because of our race, and not because of our birth, and not because of our efforts. Well, then why? Verse 13 clarifies, but of God, of the will of God. We, Christian, you have a tremendous privilege. You became, you were given the right to become a child of God by the will of God. Do you remember from earlier in Luke? It was the good pleasure of the Father to reveal these things to us. He made clear something to you. He made clear who he was and who Jesus was and who we were. And then we received him and became children. It is by the will of God that we are his children, which means, here's the point, it is the will of God. It is by God's pleased intention that he give himself to you to be your father, to be your dad. Stop and think about that. Think about that. This is something that, for me personally, has become increasingly important and increasingly sweet, and at times as I think about it, almost kind of, kind of pokes that emotional thing in my head that makes me almost cry. You know, almost, not quite. Not that I'd be wrong. But what I want to say is almost. It, it pokes something in me. The more I think about this, maybe it's getting older, I'm not sure, but you have, if you're a Christian, you have a dad who is God Almighty, and you have God Almighty as your dad because God Almighty wanted to be your dad. Yours. Not generically, I'll be father to whoever chooses. You, he said, I want to be your dad. Come here and be fathered by me. I've known that for decades. I think many of us have known this for decades, but it is possible to be increasingly moved by it. You have a dad. Some of us have terrible human fathers. Some of us have wonderful human fathers. That all being the case, this one knows how to be a good father. And he said, I want to be your dad. And I'm going to move heaven and earth to make it so. I'm going to myself send my son to this earth 
to move heaven and earth, to clear away the barrier of sin that stands between us so that I can be a father to you, so that I can pour myself out into your life and do you such fatherly good. Now, what is a good father like? Well, in some ways we can imagine it because we all have human experiences with fathers, our own and seeing others. We know what good could be and understand the order of this that God didn't see good human fathers and say, that's what I'll be like. I'm going to call myself a father so that that's a great idea. Other way around. There is such a thing as family. There is such a thing as father. There is such a thing as child. There is such a thing as good family relationships because God made it so, so that we would have some idea of grasping what it's like to have a great, attentive, personal, caring, loving Father. It's the other way around. So we, we have some, some feeling from experience, and we also can get some feeling from passages in Scripture. Think of Paul in Thessalonians, or, or Paul in Ephesians, or the writer of Hebrews. We can get some feeling of the uniqueness of fathers, in love, if you put together a couple of passages there, you have Paul saying, I was like a father to you, exhorting and encouraging and charging you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And then he cautions fathers in Ephesians, raise children in the discipline of the Lord, but don't exasperate them because we can go too far in the exhorting. We human fallen fathers can go too far in the exhorting. We can, go, we can be too hard. So don't be too hard on them, but in love discipline them. Put together Hebrews 12 and Ephesians and Thessalonians. So some unique aspect of the goodness of, of a good father is that a good father engages with his children, engages with his children to move them, to exhort, to encourage in love, to move them to walk in a manner worthy of God become like Christ. You have a dad who is good for sure, who is engaged with you then in some way to in, in encouragement and in love to move you towards Christ-likeness for his glory and for your good. And he means for you in that process to enjoy him. A good father, a good father like this one. His goodness is, is experienced as he is enjoyed and, and interacted with, not just distant and, and absent and, and maybe pulling the levers on life to maneuver me, but I, but I never have a relationship with him. We, we'd know that's not good. We'd know it's best if he's engaged and intimate, face to face. Here's a father who says, I do not remain distant and aloof and absent, but I have come near in Christ. I reside in you in my spirit, and I will one day walk with you again face to face in the garden renewed, a new heaven and a new earth. He wants us then to approach him with this mindset to live and to sit before him like Jesus and like Mary and to think, I'm a child 
And who I'm, I'm sitting opposite of, the one that I'm sitting opposite of face-to-face with is a dad who is attentive, who is engaged, who is present. He's a, he's a God. He's, he's a father who is drawn near and is inclined towards you and is familiar with you and your condition. He knows you and knows how you work better than you do. He knows you. Maybe nobody else does. He knows you and knows how you work. His arms are open to you to receive you and his arms are strong arms to shelter you and to move you. He is willing to act to do you good and wise enough to know what good is even if you don't. Right there lies a tremendous problem for us. We think we know what good is. We often don't. He can be trusted. He does. He's familiar with you and he is full of love and affection and fondness for you, not because you are yourself good, but because he sees you in Christ, his son. And Christ's sonship has been bestowed upon you as well. Because of the son, you are sons, daughters, children. Your dad, your father can do anything for you. Actually, not anything for you. Because he cannot fail you, he cannot sin against you, and he cannot ever do you wrong. He cannot fail you. He cannot sin against you, and he cannot ever do you wrong. This is your dad. Do you have this mindset as you engage with our Father who is in heaven? As you, as you walk with him throughout the day, as you then come and sit before him, maybe you open up his word and you, and you read and you see something of him and you, and you talk with him and you commune with him, maybe in the car, maybe in that spare bedroom at your house. As you, as you sit before God, it's this perspective or something like it guiding your thinking and your walking through life. And does it draw you to pray to him When you see, even here with, with, in human relationships, when you see a child and a father that that child knows, that kid asks for everything. Even ridiculous stuff. Can I have, can I have, can I have, can I have, can I have? Will you, will you, will you, will you? And you say, like, no, you can't have a new car. You can't even drive. What are you talking about? 
It's ridiculous. But the kid asks because the kid thinks, my dad could do anything, and he certainly isn't going to be upset. And he wants me to ask, so I ask. I, I, just, I live towards him. That's how a young child just automatically thinks. I live towards him. I want, I ask. I engage with, I talk with. He's attentive to me. We look at that and we say, there are a lot of things you don't understand. So in some ways, we set that example aside. Brothers and sisters, you have a father who can do anything, who is attentive to you, who loves to hear your cries, who will not chastise you for asking for something silly. He may say no, but ask. Pray, commune with, talk to, engage with. I read a writer recently in a, in a magazine, I can't remember the guy's name, but he talked about communication. He said, I will sometimes put communication, I'll put it like this, communion behavior to get across what's going on as we talk, what's going on as we pray. I'm conducting communion behavior. with your Father who is in heaven, who wants to hear from you and is attentive to your cry. We have a privilege as Christians given us on purpose by God to talk with him, to commune with him as children with an attentive Father. And secondly then, talk to him like this. Father, cause yourself to be accurately known and uniquely revered. Father, cause yourself to be accurately known and uniquely revered. After the introductory word, verse 2 contains two phrases that are constructed differently than the rest of the prayer in verses 3 and 4. It's all request all the way through, but they're, they're structured differently. There's something different going on here in verse 2. It's, it's spoken to God, asking God to do something about God. The rest of it's about us. So the first, the first verse, verse 2, has two things about God. God, his person, that is your name, and then God, his kingdom. Hallowed be your name. This is a request, not a statement. Make your name hallowed. In the original language, the root of hallow, that's an odd English word, but the root of hallow is the same root word behind the word holy. And to be holy is about being set apart from, to be distinct from, separated. To regard something as special or sacred and to treat it then with reverence, to revere it, maybe even to worship it and to not treat it as ordinary or common. So, Father, cause yourself to be known, your name, yourself to be known, and then being known to be treated no longer as ordinary and therefore ignored or overlooked or disdained, but instead to be revered. Elaborating on, hallowed be your name. Cause yourself, we're asking our Father, cause yourself to be known 
in all of your majesty and wonder. Show your immensity, your independence, your complete and unified perfection. Show your beauty, your vast goodness, and your profound righteousness. Show your sovereign might and your wonderful, sweet, and happy glory, and your justice, and your judgment, and your mercy, and your grace, and your love. Make clear who you are. It has to start with, that, with him making clear who he is, because it has to start with seeing. We don't, we don't regard as sacred things that we think are, are common. So show yourself to be other, very unique, and very distinct, different. Start there, Lord. We don't treat as, as different things that we see as we think of as common. So there has to be a change in perspective. I recently read in paper about three, four weeks ago an op-ed piece written in regards to the Pokemon Go phenomenon. I am proud to say I did not know what that was. <laughs> I had heard of Pokemon, but I didn't know what he was talking about, so I looked it up. Those of you who don't know, Pokemon Go is a trite cell phone online game resembling a gigantic worldwide scavenger hunt. I'm sure I'm missing some of the details. <laughs> game players search for and in some way collect and in virtual reality interact with these computerized figures, these little Pokemons, in all kinds of locations around the globe. Did I mention it was trite? You see people standing in front of the Eiffel Tower with their cell phones. In front of the Eiffel Tower with their cell phones. Let's see pictures of this. Well, so this guy is writing in response to that, and, and he, he wrote something, I'm paraphrasing it slightly, but he wrote essentially, here's a sentence I never thought I'd have to write for an adult. You shouldn't play Pokemon Go in Arlington National Cemetery or at Auschwitz. Well, you know, says the person, Central Park, Yosemite, Arlington, Auschwitz. You got to get them all, right? So what's the difference? I mean, they're all kind of like big open spaces where nobody lives. Well known, we can all get to them. So, it's, you know, what's the difference? No! That's hallowed ground. What are you thinking? Right? You don't walk around Arlington and Auschwitz with your cell phone collecting Pokemon. Well, how do you convince that person, those people of that, that those places are hallowed and not ordinary? Not by just saying so. The words cemetery, Holocaust already said so. Th those words are on the sign. That's why you book the ticket to fly to get to Auschwitz. That's why it exists still. 
That, that's already been said. Something, something more has to happen. There's got to be something shown to them beyond a sign, shown that reaches in. So you've got to show them the gas chamber, the incinerator, the railroad tracks built so that they could more efficiently pull up all the railroad cars, the human fuel for the fire. Go collect your Pokemon right over there. I don't think so. I hadn't seen it quite like that. I know, that's why I showed you. It's got to be something that kind of reaches beyond and in so that it's seen. Leaving Pokemon here, what, what we have before us for all the world is the God who is, the God who is holy, 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 that is entirely other, other, other. Distinct from, separate, not remotely common or ordinary, but is distinct and set apart in every conceivable way. And it's tragically rarely regarded as that, but is overlooked and treated as common and discarded and despised and disobeyed and rejected. Something has to change there. It's got to be a, a difference. Come upon people and realize something here. The human problem before God is not sin understood as rule-breaking or disobedience or immorality. Something like that. The human problem is godlessness. Indifference to and avoidance of the one who should be known and hallowed above all. Similar again to the Pokemon situation. The problem there is not that they disobeyed the sign that said, don't play games here. It's not just that they were rude and distracting and insensitive to other visitors, but that they disregarded the hallowed nature of the ground and disregarded the lives lost and the suffering and the price paid but then to go a step further, the problem really is within that they are the type of people who would think so little of larger things and would be captivated by cell phone gaming triviality while standing on hallowed ground. Understand, it's not that they broke the rule on the sign. Not that they, that they didn't regard it as hallowed ground. The real problem is the type of people who wouldn't regard it as hallowed ground. It's not in their behavior or in their perspective. It's in their natures. That's what's going on with humanity and God. The problem is not that we break his laws and hurt other people. It's that we disregard God. But more, it's that in our natures, we are the kind of people who, though made in the perfect image of God, now we do not resonate with him. We do not reverberate with the hallowed regard for him but have to continually remind ourselves of his presence, of his being. It doesn't just like run through us and shake us. It's got to be like put in. It runs out. That's the problem that I leak. And I have no regard for his laws, which are merely reflections of his natures, of his nature. 
and instead in his place and moved by and we are impressed by and drawn to and we revere and set aside as holy anything other than him. We can't help it because that's what we're made for, to regard something and to revere something and exalt something. And the problem is that it's not God anymore because we're busted. The wreckage of the world is evidence of the problem, not the problem itself. Notice carefully again, the charge that, I, that is by the Bible that is laid against us is a, laid against who we are, not what we do. That's what must change. Who we are. To become again people for whom God himself is what we hallow. People who in fact hallow, regard him as holy and set apart him first and foremost. So this is what must be preached and what must be proclaimed, what must be shown to people. But if we're going to talk about change of that magnitude, not changing my behaviors and and what I do, but what I am, if we're going to talk about change of that magnitude, we should immediately realize the preacher can't touch that. Which is why this is not a preaching guide. It's a prayer. Follow what I'm trying to walk us through there. I'm trying to show the problem is not just out here in our, in our simple behaviors and not here in we've got to change what we love, but that we are the kinds of people who love and exalt and lift up the wrong things. And so we need to like display who God really is, reveal him and make him known. But if that's just words off the preacher's lips, it's not going to touch this part. Which is why Jesus says, pray, hallowed be your name. God alone has power to hallow his name. I cannot. None of us can. This is a prayer that God would cause himself to sit heavily, to, to weigh deeply, and to, to impress profoundly, himself impress profoundly on the human heart. He isn't that way in the world, and he often is not that way for us. And so we pray, Father, by your Spirit, Maybe the words that we speak, maybe the words that we read, would you take the truth about who you are and press it into us that your name would be hallowed because we are the kind of people who see and hallow right things, the beautiful things, the marvelous things, the grand things, the immense things, and that is only you. God must change us. Father, make that so. Father, hallow your name. So, Jesus begins his prayer. Does this govern how we pray? Where this comes home to me is in my preaching and teaching and parenting. Some of these things may be similar to you, obviously, maybe the preaching and teaching stuff, not quite the same, but how much time do I spend preparing the sermon 
versus praying that God would use the sermon. That's what I'm talking about. I might think, I need to, remember the part just before the Pokemon where I talked about God, show your immensity, show your beauty, show your glory. I might think and I might work on, I might spend hours laboring over how do I express in these words and draw these arguments and express this passage. There, I've done it. And never pray. And God might say, apart from me, you can do nothing, bud. Can't touch the problem. Great sermon. I may interact with my kids. I'm a, I'm a dad, I've got kids. I may interact with them and I may try to, try to shape them and, and look over the situations in their life where they're being inclined in certain ways and where opportunities and, and situations arise. And I may try to talk and I may try to guide and I may try to counsel and I may try to correct and shape and encourage and never pray. Apart from me, you can nothing. Good luck with that. I may work really hard that his name may be hallowed. And Jesus said, I told you to pray for that. To pray for that. Because you can't actually make it happen, Steve. Fill in your name in that blank, Steve. Take out my name, put in yours. So whatever situation it is, if, if you're a parent, maybe it's parenting. If, if you're interacting with a friend in some counsel situation, it, it's that. Whatever situation it is, even in your own life, you're, you're told here to pray, to ask God to hallow his name. He will certainly use the means of the scripture. Reference last week. Sit before Jesus and listen to his teaching. But we have to pray it in. Because it's the spirit that causes it to be implanted and to blossom. So we pray, hallowed be his name. And we also realize our own shortcomings in this. And, and I, I, rec I recognize that in some ways, uh, as I'm talking about this, I'm talking to a church. And in some ways, in some real and glorious ways, you do hallow his name. And you don't. That's at least me. I do and I don't. And maybe there's something that's kind of saying, but... Uh, uh. So understand two things here. Only take whatever kind of poke there is in this, only take that as far as it's true. It is true to some degree. You don't hallow his name as you should. So take it that far. And thank God that you do hallow his name to some degree because that's of God. He has already answered the prayer, hallowed be your name. You, you hallow him in some way. That's, that's of God. That's a work that he has done. Bless God for that. And say, thank you, and Lord, there's more. And in the thank you, but Lord, there's more. Right there, we're on the cusp of the second petition. Because in this, Lord, there's more, I, at least, find myself saying, ah, Lord, there's more. 
I don't regard you as I should, and I don't pray as I should. There's more. God, help me. And God, let your kingdom come. The third point. Here's the third observation rephrased. I'll be shorter here. Father, bring in the full kingdom in all of its glory. Father, bring in the full kingdom in all of its glory. End of verse 2. Your kingdom come. And it is not wrong to think about this in some, some present tense, ongoing sense. Lord, let more of your kingdom come right now in this situation. Or let more of your kingdom come in my life. Let, let your kingdom expand and, and draw in more people. It's not wrong to think of that because we should be praying for that. But that's not exactly what he has in view here. The, the grammar is not ongoing. It's, it's a, uh, it would make us think more about something that's, that's done in a certain point. If we compare it to the, the synagogue prayer and we compare it to Matthew, we realize both of those are pointing towards the end. He has in view the kingdom is already coming with Jesus here. Make it come. Think of Matthew's words. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that is, perfectly, completely. When will it be perfectly, completely done? When the kingdom comes. So what Jesus is, is intending us to think about here is bring that day when the kingdom in all of its glory comes. So we're praying, Lord, that you would bring an end to this earth which, wait a minute, isn't that what everybody's trying to avoid? That's like doomsday. Or at least you're being really negative. You're talking about, I want this, all that we have now, to go away. Isn't there good here? Isn't there something valuable? Isn't there something beautiful here? Yes, in part, absolutely. But the answer has to include an in part. I touched on this already at the end of the last point, but do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes. Blessed are those who, and he's talking about these are, the, these are what disciples are like, what they think like. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn, who are weeping now. Why are we weeping now? And why are we mourning now? And why are we hungry? Why be so negative? Man, it's such a good world. In part, in part. And in that part, we must indeed give thanks to God and enjoy it. But we are missing something massive if we think in part is actually in total. It isn't. And you get in touch with that just a little bit if you've considered the first position, the first, uh, sub, the first petition, Lord, hallowed be your name in me because it's not hallowed in me, let alone out there. It's not hallowed in me as it should be. And Lord, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in growth, I'm in process, but I'm not there and increasingly I see that's wrong, and I hunger and I thirst to be more, to be different, to, to be more like Mary and less like Martha, to be more like Jesus and less like me. 
I want more of that. And increasingly, as you get in touch with that, you realize that's not going to happen fully, completely until Christ returns and makes it all new. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the primary, consistent, day-by-day driver for the Christian to pray this prayer. Not just because I think the world's terrible, and not just when, when I'm facing persecution. If that's the reason to come, that's really about just me, not the honor of God. And I'm going to find that increasingly odd when the world's not terrible, when I'm healthy, wealthy, and wise, and not being persecuted. Why do I want this to end? Because you just got done praying, hallowed be your name, and you just realized his name's not hallowed. Not even in you. And you want that. He wants your father, your dad, to be known and seen and appropriately honored and revered, delighted in and communed with like he should be, like would be most completely, totally, perfectly rewarding to you, and like one day will be again, like what was, what isn't, and what will be. And longing for that, you say, Lord, bring that day when you yourself will be vindicated, when there'll be no more articles in the paper talking about how much of a fool you are. I'm referencing something in our classroom this morning. When there'll be nothing in life where people turn away from you and reject you and regard you as common, and there will be no more suffering and no more pain and no more evil, but there will be shalom. The kingdom of peace will be. That will be only, that will be only when he comes. Your kingdom come, Lord. That's what we pray. And until that day, we keep praying to our dad, knowing that he is attentive, that he is strong and able and is always doing good, asking him to hallow his name in our lives and in the world all around to make us the kind of people who regard as hallowed, hallowed things. And to answer that problem, that, that disconnect, to answer that fully and finally completely by bringing in the kingdom in all of its fullness and all of its glory. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Let's pray. Dad, Dad, we say thank you. We say thank you that you have done what was necessary and what in the moment we wanted nothing to do with. But you have done what was necessary. You sent your Son, who alone perfectly hallowed your name. And he inaugurated the kingdom. He brought it in in part. Thank you. And we ask you then to send your Son again in the fullness of glory. To bring in the kingdom in all of its full glory. That your name would be fully hallowed. Would you do that, please? In the meantime, open our eyes and change our hearts that we would see you more clearly and revere you more deeply and enjoy you more intimately. 
That's what you mean in making yourself our dad. You mean for that to be our experience. And would you gather in from all of the nations those who are still out, bring them in. Build your church and honor your name and bring your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.